0: Welcome to the Out of Limits of an In Truth radio show, OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, our focus of attention will be about the spiritual and medicinal benefits of MDMA, which is known as ecstasy. Just last week, the FDA said that MDMA was a breakthrough treatment for people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. This is an incredible announcement. So people who are suffering... It's another way of treating and healing. I want to bring to your attention that I have taken MDMA several times and I utilized it especially in the latter times as a means of spiritual growth and processing the shadow. So here's one of the experiences. I would take the MDMA, meditate, I would listen to music and I would read books and and my senses seemed to be increased substantially especially when it came to intuition. When I was reading a book, I was absorbing the information much faster, I was absorbing the music and at one point, I had this download of information, I would call it from my higher self. It was like the surge of intuition and I wrote down everything that uh, my higher self was, was channeling to me and the information that I channeled one of those nights, I still look at to this day as a kind of a roadmap to go forward. So it was a profound positive experience. And everyone who takes MDMA probably has their own different experience. But I want to bring something to your attention. There seems to be some type of pressure in our society that says, well, you can only heal yourself or do something a certain way. And I think that's total bullshit. You know, this is your life. This is your evolution. You do whatever you need to do to heal yourself and grow. And I don't think that anyone has any right to tell you otherwise. So whatever you decide, whatever path you take – I want you to know that I stand with you and stand behind you 100%, and I wish upon you an abundance of love and peace. And let us begin tonight's program. Joining us now is Dr. Julie Holland, psychiatrist specializing in pharmacology, best-selling author, and she's also author of the book, Ecstasy, The Complete Guide, A Comprehensive Look at the Risks and Benefits of MDMA. Dr. Holland, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for
2: having me, Ryan.
0: Hey. So what, how do you summarize what MDMA is? What is it? What are the basic components of it? And what are the uh, basic effects when somebody takes it?
3: So MDMA
2: uh, is a unique molecule. There's really nothing like it. It's sort of related to amphetamines. It has an amphetamine base which is why it can make you sort of more awake, more alert, wanting to talk, wanting to connect with people. Um, but it's also a massive serotonin agonist. It sort of it fills the synapses with serotonin um, acutely, and there aren't really too many drugs that do that. I mean, if you take a an antidepressant, it will slowly increase serotonin levels over time, but this is something that happens uh, pretty much immediately. And uh, it's this combination of being a stimulant and being a massive serotonin agonist that gives you this unique experience. Serotonin is something that makes you uh, relaxed, calm, sort of satiated. You feel like you have everything you need. Um, You're in a pretty good mood. And stimulants also will make you feel pretty confident and happy. So it's this combination of being happy and relaxed and talkative and attentive that makes it perfect for using uh, within the context of psychotherapy to help people sort of be relaxed enough to open up and talk about the things they really need to get to.
0: And how long does does MDMA generally last for?
2: So, you know, it's different for different people, and it also seems to matter a little bit if you've been taking it a lot or not. But in general, I would say between four and six hours, maybe three or four hours if you're kind of a fast metabolizer. So it's not an all-day event the way that LSD is. A similar time frame to psilocybin about four to six hours
0: okay now, when you are taking this and the serotonin is being released, does that in any way shape or form put you at a disadvantage for the next few days because you have a lack of serotonin? Are you basically utilizing um, serotonin that is stored up in your brain, and you're not, you know will you have a lack of serotonin for the next like four or five days or a prolonged period of time?
2: Yeah. Well, again, it, uh, there's a lot of individual differences, but in general, yes, it is a depleter. Your your presynaptic stores are are sort of depleted. You know, so you kind of shoot your whole load, and you've gotten rid of a lot of serotonin. So um, there is, for some people, sort of a lower state that happens a day or especially two days after um, they've taken MDMA. And also, the there's an enzyme that that sort of repletes the stores that makes new serotonin that is temporarily incapacitated. So the combination of the depletion and uh, a delayed repletion um, can make some people depressed. You know, there's a, there's a saying of suicide Tuesdays if you've taken ecstasy over the weekend that you can really crash after. So uh, for most people, the first time they take it, they feel great afterwards, maybe even the second or third time, but if people keep doing it, the crash gets worse. Uh, the the high gets shorter, the crash is worse, you know, it starts to become clear that it's not something you want to continue to do.
0: Okay, and let's talk about the risks of MDMA. What do you see right away as the uh, immediate risks of MDMA for somebody taking it?
2: So the, the number one risk, absolutely, is that you have no idea what you're taking. You know, because this is an unregulated drug or medicine, there's a lot of counterfeit drug I and mean, drug substitution. So that's really the first danger is that you have no idea whether you're taking MDMA or not. And even if you do find pure MDMA, you have no idea how much you're taking. If you're buying a tablet at a club or buying a a baggie of white powder, which could be absolutely anything. So the second risk is overheating, heat stroke. Um, In crowded environments where you're dancing for hours and getting overheated and not taking breaks, MDMA increases your risk of heat stroke. And the third risk is actually over It's drinking too much water. You know, everybody has gotten this message that they need to drink a lot of water when they take MDMA. But the truth is, especially in women, and especially premenstrual women, MDMA causes water retention. It makes you retain water. So, like, if right now you were I drink a gallon of water, we would basically urinate out a gallon of water, and we'd be fine. But with MDMA, you, you sort of keep more than you release, and you can end up in this waterlogged state um, where you just basically have too much water in your system, your brain has too much water, your lungs have too much water, um, and your sodium levels are getting lower and lower. They're sort of getting diluted, and that overhydration um, runs the risk of seizures, coma, death, so, um, it's something I always like to warn people about that everyone's gotten this message that they should drink a lot of water, but really you should only drink as much water as you're losing through sweating. You should replete whatever water is being depleted, but you shouldn't overhydrate.
0: Is there anything that you'd highly recommend that people never, ever mix MDMA with? Is there any, should they ever? take mdma drink alcohol should they ever take mdma even use cannabis like what are some of the right well the
2: the short answer is it's absolutely you know you're increasing it's dangerous enough taking a chemical when you don't know what it is you're certainly going to increase your risk if you add another chemical to that i mean there's certain uh dextromethorphan dxm and mdma um, are very dangerous together because they markedly increase the risk of heat stroke and sometimes counterfeit tablets have DXM in them. So that's, that's a particularly dangerous combination. Um, any MAO inhibitors and MDMA would be very dangerous.
0: Um, and also, as far as they said that at the beginning that somebody's not going to know what they're going to be getting, is there any way, is there any, are there any things that are available that are able to actually tell what kind of uh, MDMA you have
2: so or there-
0: uh, to weigh it? Is there any like
2: yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are some uh, venues that will allow drug testing at their sites, um, and these are usually reagents like a marquee reagent. It's a, you know, you scrape off a little, a few crumbs of the pill, or you put a little bit of powder on a plate, and you can add uh, these droppers that will turn color, and they can give you some indication of whether there is something in the family of MDMA that's in that tablet, or whether it's an unknown substance, so, um you know, that is sort of a harm reduction method is to do drug testing. Um, and there are places where you can send pills or send powder to be analyzed.
0: Okay. And as far as MDMA being used for um, you know, psychotherapy sessions and being used to help people, how does that, how is MDMA potentially used or used to treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder and other stress-related matters or traumas?
2: So, you know, the first thing that's good about the medical model as opposed to the recreational model is that you have a patient who's sitting comfortably, they're not dancing for hours on end. They may be drinking a little water, but they're not, you know, drinking a gallon. Um, and they've taken 125 milligrams of a pure substance that's known to be MDMA. It's known to be 99% pure. So right there, you're getting rid of a lot of risks. Um, and the other issue that's important to remember with psychotherapy is that this is not the context of ongoing psychotherapy. So the way the studies are set up, there are several very long psycho- psychotherapy sessions with the practitioner before the MDMA is administered. But at some point in the study, there will be these MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions where the MDMA can act as a catalyst and allow the therapy to go deeper and to be less traumatic. I mean, you know, the, the metaphor I often use is it's, it's sort of like anesthesia during surgery where the patient is, is sort of much more open and comfortable, and you can go ahead and sort of surgically maneuver yourself to that malignant thing that needs to be pulled out and examined. So with somebody who's got a history of trauma, say say somebody was, like, raped when they were a child or something, um, it can be a repressed memory. There can be a lot of defenses against talking about it. They may not even fully remember it. But with the MDMA, the defenses uh, melt away to a large degree, And because the person feels calm and comfortable and confident, they're able to really debrief, examine the trauma, get to it, talk about it, um, and also uh, come to some measure of acceptance about it. And one of the really unique things about MDMA is that um, it enhances oxytocin levels. And oxytocin is sort of about bonding and trust and affiliation. So... The, it strengthens the bond between the therapist and the patient and it also sort of strengthens this feeling of um, I can accept this I can I can integrate this you know I have trust around this I'm going to fully accept what has happened to me I'm going to fully accept me even though you know this trauma is part of me uh, there may be forgiveness on the part of the assailant or whatever happened to create the trauma. So it ends up being a very healing event, this therapy. And then what's because of the amphetamine base, which sort of increases dopamine in the brain, there is enhanced memory, not only for the trauma. You remember everything about the trauma, but you remember everything about the therapy. So unlike some other um, sort of psychedelic psychotherapies or uh you know, this sort of truth serum therapy where they may give you like a lot of benzos and you remember things, but you can't remember the therapy itself. But with MDMA, you remember all of the therapeutic experience. So it's, you know, you really couldn't design a better molecule to as a catalyst for
0: psychotherapy. Okay, so when people are doing it, how in one way, you said because of these um, enhancements, I guess, of the brain, how does this basically accelerate the therapy, as opposed to somebody going through several years of this, what is it? I mean, what is ultimately, what is it? How does it ultimately speed things up, or like maybe maybe make it have it a jump?
2: Well, I mean, you sort of answered your question. I mean, you're talking about one afternoon instead of several years, so that's how it speeds it up, you know. And then normal psychotherapy. It's like peeling away the layers of an onion, and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of sort of fits and starts, and there's a lot of plateaus. You get to some place that's uncomfortable, everybody's pulling back, then you kind of push forward a little bit, and it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back. Um, and sometimes with psychotherapy, when it really starts getting hard or painful, people quit. Um, or they become distrustful of their therapist, or they think they're not doing a good job, or they don't really care about them. You know, There's all kinds of doubts and good psychotherapy takes years and years and years, and it's hard. It's hard work, and it's a, a long process, and you have to be very patient. So to telescope that down into one day you know, or one afternoon, um, that's why I call it a catalyst, You know, because it makes it go faster, it makes it go deeper, and it makes it easier. Um, you know, It's not a fun day to sort of recount your traumas, but you get a lot of work done, and I think it's tremendously satisfying, not just for the the client, but for the therapist to really have this intense emotional debriefing. Okay.
0: This is a two-part question. First, one, are there any places where a person who's got post-traumatic stress disorder, who, who wants to take their therapy in this particular direction, is there any place where they can actually go to uh, be treated with MDMA? And the second question is, have you ever treated any patients over the years with an MDMA-based uh, session?
2: So, you know, the short answer is no. Like, right now, MDMA is a Schedule I drug, and the only way to legally undergo MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is to be enrolled in a study. Um, And if you go to maps.org, maps.org, or mdmatherapy.org, or mdmaptsd.org, these are ways to find out where the studies are um, and see if you can qualify to enroll. What there is, to some degree, um, are there are underground therapists who work with MDMA all around the country who aren't involved in these studies, but, you know, that's totally illegal. Mm. Um, I don't know who they are. I don't want to know who they are. I mean, people ask me all the time for referrals, and I don't make those kind of referrals. I don't really know where the underground therapists are. I mean, I have a sense that they're clustered around some of the kind of groovier places in America, you know, that there's probably a lot in the Bay Area, and there's probably a lot around, you know, Seattle and Portland, and... Um, I know there are some in New York city, but, um, there's no organized network of these underground therapists. So it's, it's hard to refer people. And, you know, while there are studies at, in South Carolina and in Colorado and in California and in Massachusetts, they're very limited in terms of who they can take. Um, so this is not yet anything that's, that's widespread and available, um, and I don't perform underground MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I'm the I'm the medical monitor for several studies, um, so that I can help ensure safety and sort of minimize adverse events that are happening. Um, and I help with the reporting of safety and adverse events. But I am um, not administering MDMA in these studies. That is uh, Michael Midhofer in South Carolina, and Philip Philip Wolfson in California and um, Marcella Otolora in Colorado, and um, all this information is on MAPS.org about who's doing what studies in this country and in other countries.
0: Okay. And in addition to the utilizing MDMA to treat people, how do you feel that MDMA can be utilized by an individual who wishes to learn or wishes to, say, for example, um, you know, put several affirmations in the mindset about, uh, say, success or weight loss or wishes to reprogram their brain, if they are taking MDMA and they are reading or they are pulling in information, will that have a, a more substantial impact on their ability to retain that information and to, let's say, make that information part of their subconscious as opposed to them practicing that repeatedly in waking reality?
1: Right.
2: Well, there are definitely people who think that MDMA can be useful for hypnotherapy to sort of help the hypnotherapy work better, go deeper, kind of, you know, get that subliminal message in there um, more firmly. But there's no real clinical research to back up that idea. I mean, there's, a, there's certainly anecdotal reports of hypnotherapy with MDMA, Um which I think I did cover in Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. And by the way, um, I didn't author that book. I edited the book, so I wrote okay. a good chunk of it, but there's multiple authors. All the experts from around the world sort of weighed in um, on that book, Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. So I always like to just correct people that I'm, I'm the editor okay. and not the author because I don't want to wanna hog the credit. Um, the other thing I'll say is that that is a, a nonprofit book where all proceeds fund clinical research.
0: Did you... Take a lot of con was it pretty controversial when the book came out? Did you did, did you and the other individuals who were contributing to the book take a lot of um criticism from the uh, mainstream media about that?
2: No. Surprisingly no. I mean it was really weird. I thought maybe I would like, you know, lose my job or I mean nothing. No negative consequences. Really? I got to give a grand rounds at NYU, um and Mount Sinai. I mean I um I didn't get a lot of, of heat for it. I mean, you know, a lot of people said that it was brave, but there weren't really any untoward consequences. Um and even you know, I live in a tiny little town and it's very conservative here and there's you know, it's a very kind of churchy, buttoned up uh Republican conservative town that I live in and, and even here I haven't really gotten a sense that it's been a been a problem.
0: And now are you surprised that – is there a particular reason why, uh, I guess, a lot of society I mean really comes down hard on ecstasy or MDMA? Is there a particular reason why they're so against it? Do you think that has – do you think their underlying factor might be the fact that it can be very effective in psychotherapy? And and if that was accepted on a mainstream, a wider level, that a lot of these other drugs that are currently being utilized to treat people who have uh, you know, mental challenges, they would be kind of discredited or be pushed aside for MDMA?
2: right i mean if if this becomes a widespread treatment it will put a dent in the daily dose that you know is so important to big pharma's bottom line so i mean i haven't had a sense of the pushback um, because it's not yet a widespread thing but i think one of the reasons why people are nervous about drugs in general is that they're afraid of losing control they're afraid of uh, you know, their dark side, the sort of Jungian shadow that everybody has. So I think a lot of our drug policy is really based in fear and fear of losing control, fear of knowing ourselves, you know, fear of the unknown, like really very, very basic things that have been part of the puritanical vision for a long time. So, I, I you know, I understand that it is subversive and it makes people nervous. Um, and maybe it should be making Big Pharma nervous, but I don't, you know, they're fine. <laughs> they're making tons of money.
0: <laughs> They'll be they're fine. Selling, They'll continue you know, to make money.
2: Right. I mean, um. between between antidepressants and stimulants, I mean, you know, half of America, I feel like, are either taking antidepressants or they're taking ADD meds. And, How do you feel
1: you about know, the antidepressants? The other half are
2: taking, you know, pain meds. And I think between, like, the smack and speed that Big Pharma is peddling, they have plenty of money, and I don't think they need to worry too much about this.
0: Um, what I actually want to know is that how do you feel about antidepressants in some way? Do you feel that uh, sometimes that it might be better to do something like a like an MDMA or, or do a, a one-time experience where you go through this as opposed to taking an antidepressant over the course of a number of, of weeks or years?
2: Right. Well, this is, you know, the, the metaphor that I've been using for years is that, you know, it's the difference between sort of sweeping the dirt under the rug repeatedly and having a very lumpy rug versus taking the rug out back and beating the hell out of it and while the rug is out you sweep the whole room. I mean, you know, there's there's a way of sort of cleaning house where you're not just hiding the dirt. And I think that for a lot of people who are taking daily doses of antidepressants, they're sort of enabling their crappy lifestyles to persist. You know, the way I mean I just I just wrote a book about this called Moody Bitches, about how many women now are taking antidepressants when Yes, some of them really need daily doses of antidepressants, but a lot of people what they really need is either you know, good focused psychotherapy or they need to be in their body and exercise more and be outside in the sunshine or be outside in nature or they need to have, you know, better relationships with people and not just virtual friends online. I and mean, there's a lot of ways right now that we are living our lives that are pretty unhealthy, that are psychiatrically unhealthy. You know, being sedentary is terrible for your brain. Eating processed foods is terrible for your brain. Um, and, you know, this sort of synthetic relationships and synthetic food and synthetic breasts and synthetic moods that a lot of women have now, it's all unnatural and making us sicker. So, yeah, there you could make a case that, you know, intensive psychotherapy with a catalyst once or twice in your lifetime will get you farther and be healthier than taking a daily dose that just sort of um, enables you to continue with a lot of unhealthy behaviors.
0: Uh, This next part is a two-part question. If you look when somebody is on MDMA and they're feeling this great dose of serotonin flung through the body, they feel fantastic, they feel wonderful, are there any activities that a person can engage in that would allow them to have a daily increase of serotonin flowing through their body? And are there any natural supplements or foods they can eat that will increase their ability or their body's ability to produce additional serotonin? I'm, I'm looking, The keys I'm looking for are natural activities and natural ways to raise your serotonin level to come close to even that of when you're on uh, MDMA. Right.
2: Well, again, I think the short answer is probably no, that that, that the the depletion and the a huge sort of load of serotonin, especially the first time you take MDMA. Nothing's going to come close to that. But um, there are certainly things you can do to increase your serotonin levels. I mean, um, St. John's wort is something. 5-HTP is an amino acid that is a precursor or building block to serotonin. Um, there are foods that are rich in tryptophan, which if they're combined with uh carbohydrates they can cross the blood brain barrier and help you to make more serotonin there are vitamins and even like just b-complex vitamin that helps the enzyme that makes serotonin work better so you could eat tryptophan rich foods and take b-complex vitamins and be sort of judicious and when you have carbs to help you make your own serotonin but um the thing that I talk about a lot in Moody Bitches is all the activities you can do that can help your mood that aren't antidepressants. And then you're really talking about an um, you know, anti-inflammatory diet and um, vitamin D and sunshine and B-complex vitamins and fish oils and probiotics because your bacteria and the biome has a lot to do with your brain functioning. And inflammation has a lot to do with brain function. Anything you can do to decrease inflammation, which means decrease stress, meditate, do yoga, do cardio, have an anti-inflammatory diet. I mean, even using cannabis, which is a potent anti-inflammatory medicine, all those things can help your mood.
0: Dr. Julie Holland, psychotherapist, I want to thank you so, so much for being on our program today. We can learn more about Dr. Holland by going to her website at drholland.com. You're going to find uh, information about her practice, about her books. We're definitely going to have her back on. Dr. Holland, thank you. It was a really great, fascinating interview. All right. It's my pleasure. Joining us now is Dr. James Giordano, professor of the Department of Neurology, chief of the Neuroethics Studies Programs at Georgetown University Medical Center. You can learn more about him by going to his website at neurobioethics.org. Dr. Giordano, thank you so much for being with us today. I was wondering if you could please tell our listeners what do you find are some of the most compelling arguments in your experience that state that MDMA might have some additional benefits?
4: Sure, it's a pleasure to be here, Ryan, and I really appreciate it and also talking with your with your audience. You know, MDMA has been around for a long time. It's methylene dioxy, methamphetamine, and of course the street names for it are ecstasy or, or Molly. And the drug is rather interesting because it has some very specific effects on the brain. It works through a neurochemical system called the serotonin system. And it specifically works at small molecules that bind this chemical in the brain called receptors. And it works at two specific receptor systems, the serotonin type. The 2 receptor system and the serotonin type 1A receptor system. Now, that may mean absolutely nothing at all to your listeners, but it means a lot in the brain because what happens is as MDMA binds to these receptors, it causes a rise in the neurochemical serotonin in the brain, and then downstream may also cause changes in other neurochemical mechanisms, including, but not limited to, a change or a rise in the release of a brain substance called oxytocin and oxytocin has been strongly applied to provide feelings of wellness and affiliation, uh, feelings of of sort of togetherness and warmth. And that may be very important when we look at some of the effects of MDMA and also some of its potential therapeutic uses. So if we could just talk about those for a moment in direct answer to your question, I think this is critical. Because, as you may remember, ecstasy was first used by a psychotherapist in New York City, to treat relational problems that was used in marriage and family therapy to bring couples together and make them feel closer and warmer. Well, we now understand some of the mechanisms for that. Now, what we're seeing is that MDMA is finding some new use for treatment of a host of other potentially neuropsychiatric disorders, inclusive of things like PTSD and certain forms of intractable depression. So it's gaining some new favor based upon an increased understanding of how it works and a much more clearly defined sense of the mechanisms and the outcomes that those brain processes may evoke in certain patients.
0: Okay. And from what you've been studying about the brain over the course of a number of years, have you found that in recent uh, generations of people are having less chemicals within their brain that would naturally allow them to be happy? So when you look at MDMA, it provokes this uh, chemical reaction within the brain that allows you to feel happier. And I'm curious to know if there's actually a way to get to that point naturally as well. So I guess that's a two-part question.
4: Yeah, sure. Well, I think that the the first question speaks to the fact that we're probably actually diagnosing many of these disorders with much more accuracy. I, I don't necessarily think that it's because people are becoming sadder We're not necessarily as happy, but I think what we've done is we've refined some of the diagnostic criteria, number one. And number two, I think there's less of a stigma against some of these neurological applications in psychiatry than there may have been in the past. And certainly, we're getting a better understanding of how these drugs and and other treatments work. So I think what's happened is, uh, particularly in those cases where patients have not been responsive to other therapies, like first-line order drugs, the antidepressant drugs, and the anti-anxiety drugs, there have been a couple of research groups that have looked at drugs such as MDMA and then have found to be effective. In this case, I'm, I'm referring to the work of Michael Mithofer and Mark Wagner at, at South Carolina. Um, Dr. Mithofer is in private psychiatric practice, and Dr. Wagner is at the Medical University of South Carolina. They've been doing some very pioneering work with the, the use of MDMA and, and other agents, psilocybin so, and also LSD, very, very low and very controlled doses, and in an inpatient or partial inpatient setting to treat treatment resistant forms of PTSD and, and agitated depression. As, as relates to your other question, are there things that we can do perhaps outside of trying to find individuals who will provide us with therapeutic doses of DNA and these other forms of what may be considered psychedelic drugs? But well, I think the answer is yes. I think certainly. If if we take a look at a variety of practices, things that range from uh, mindfulness and meditation, there's an increased literature that would suggest that that's important. And, of course, one of the things feeling very large on the horizon of current possibilities is the use of these new neurotechnologies, things like transcranial electrical and magnetic stimulation that are becoming more and more both clinically available.
0: what is that? If um, if somebody doesn't know, like, what is that? Is that... uh, which means, what, they implant a chip in you or something?
4: No, no, no. Uh, that's actually, you know, that, that, that's the far end of the spectrum. So these, these transcranial devices are just that. They're applied to the surface of the scalp. And in the case of transcranial electrical stimulation, they provide a very, very, very low dose of electrical current. At discrete areas on the scalp that have been mapped out, and these are called montages. and some of these have been shown to pre- produce very uh, significant effects such as a change in mood, a change in arousal, in some cases relaxation, in other cases increased cognitive focus and perhaps the ability to learn a little bit better and perhaps remember better. And with transcranial magnetic stimulation, this is primarily being used in in a clinical environment to treat things like anxiety and depression. So I think there are some new technologies that are on the horizon that may begin to see more and more clinical use not only as standalone modalities, but perhaps also to be used together with drugs such as MDMA and more, more traditional psychotherapeutic drugs to be able to get the type of effects we're looking for, particularly in those patients that don't respond well to first-line therapies.
0: Do you worry at some capacity that if they implement or utilize these new technologies and more people are able to experience, let's say, the, the perpetual joy of ecstasy, that they might actually be putting themselves in a long-term danger because you know I would like to th- imagine that if you are depressed or you're feeling upset that it is your body telling you signals that it's something you need to address a fundamental problem do you feel that by people maybe engaging ecstasy maybe a little bit too much or having this opportunity to feel good too much is maybe covering up or diverting away from the real cause of a problem that needs to be addressed
4: you know, right, there's, there's really two questions that you've asked here and I really want to make sure we address them fully the first is that I think your listeners need to remember and well understand that these studies showing that MEDMA has been useful to treat certain forms of PTSD and treatment-resistant depression have been done under strict clinical observation and supervision. They've been done where patients are either as inpatients, in other words, they're in a hospital or clinical setting, and with then as partially inpatient, where they're, they're being given the drug and then they're being observed for a fairly long period of time, up to two or three days to observe not only the positive effect of the drug, but in case anything goes wrong, any potential side effects. And let's face it, every treatment is going to have potential side effects. So I think what your listening audience needs to understand is that this is not a do-it-yourself approach. This is not, you know, go out to wherever you can obtain some molly or ecstasy and take some of this and you'll feel better. No, no, not at all. It's a question of tailoring the right dose for the right effect on the right people. And that requires clinical intervention, and significant clinical supervision and oversight. So the idea of people just running out and getting this stuff, and it is an illicit drug, and let's let's not forget that this is a drug that is out there on the street and it is indeed an illegal substance, it's a controlled substance. So again, I think finding the, the right approach to using this drug is critically important. The second is, well, might we also be perhaps missing other things? Are we, are we avoiding other ways of perhaps treating depression or lessening depression? And I think the answer is, in some cases, yes. But I think that for those patients who are really suffering the ravages of PTSD and treatment-resistant forms of depression and anxiety, certainly these new approaches hold considerable promise. They just have to be done the right way with the right level of supervision and with the right level of observation.
0: Okay. Now let's say, for example, um, somebody's out there says, you know what? I can't find a clinical study within me. I I really want to explore this MDMA. If you were to, say, for example, you have to play devil's advocate and you have to say, okay, well, listen, if you're going to do that, here are some safety approaches. What are some safety approaches would you recommend to somebody who's going to, I guess, throw all caution to the wind and uh, take a chance with MDMA?
4: You know, First of all, let's say it's very, very explicit that that would be something I would never advocate, and the reasons for this are multifold. First of all, whoever was looking to do this would have to retain the MDMA, and again, we have to understand that the drug that's being used in these clinical studies is of the purest quality. I mean, this is very, very high-quality MDMA. This is highly controlled. The substance has been analyzed for any potential impurities, and it represents a very specified dose of the actual compound itself not something that's easily obtainable or achievable, quote, on the street. So that's the first issue. The other is that it's being administered in these clinical settings under very, very controlled conditions. Again, not very likely to happen when an individual is trying to do this themselves. So I think the first flag that I would throw up is
0: that's really
4: not an approach that I would advocate. But what I would suggest is that those patients who may be listening in your audience who have been suffering from intractable PTSD, who have intractable or treatment-resistant depression and anxiety, uh, be diligent, have, have a sense of perseverance in trying to find the right psychiatrist who's going to provide the right treatments for them. It's out there. I think sometimes if they require them to get online to, to do their own research, do a bit of due diligence, because my recommendation would be that if this is something that patients are seeking, it needs to be done right, because although the burdens are potentially high, if in fact, an individual takes these drugs the wrong way, and the risk could be huge, I think
0: What people, are some of the risks that could happen if you take the wrong way? Like what is an example of taking uh, this the wrong way?
4: Yeah sure. I think first, first, the issue is, are you really sure you're going to be getting the right drug? And, of course, there's, there's a fair amount of what we call mixed molly on the street. And that's, that's MDMA mixed with other things. And this thing just increases the risk of adverse side effects. And those side effects can be things like uh, a profound crash, possible hallucinations, increase in heart rate, increase in temperature, dehydration, and then a period of rebound anxiety and depression that for some patients is really overwhelming. So that's, that's an issue. The other thing is that patients may not be getting the actual dose of the drug that they think they're getting because this is street preparation and that just increases the risk of these very same side effects. And of course there are also toxic effects that may occur when you get mixed molly or mixed doses of ecstasy. And as a consequence, this could be a whole bunch of different things from kidney problems to liver problems to a whole host of neurological side effects, tremor, jitters, agitation, sleeplessness, and again, this is really a consequence of not getting the pure substance, not getting a controlled dose, and not having this administered under clinical situation. So, okay, so once again, this is a red flag.
0: Sure, but just to take it back to it, if we look at MDMA and its pure form, and if it is taken under supervised condition, can, will MDMA, under the circumstances, pose a uh, substantial risk to an individual? Is it naturally something that uh, could pose a danger? To the human body?
4: Well, I think that's a great question. I think that some of the early studies looking at MDMA that suggested that it had a highly, um, rather high risk profile and a rather high harm profile were over exaggerated. Those earlier studies have been in some cases refuted and in other cases very strongly rejected. And what we're seeing now is that with the right dose, the lower dose under control circumstances, this drug may be fairly beneficial, and in some cases, may be very beneficial to treating patients who've had treatment-resistant PTSD. But once again, it's finding the right dose at that right level of control, even under the right circumstances, and I think that there's some real promise that's being shown in these clinical studies that are being conducted.
0: Okay. And this is a question I should have asked you uh, earlier, uh, Dr. Giordano, is that... If you look at MDMA, what, are, what is the chemical compound structure of chem, MDMA? Is it difficult to make? And it is, is it something that is more chemical based, or is it something that has any kind of natural um, essence to it?
4: Well, it's an amphetamine. It's methylene dioxy methamphetamine. Um, it, it is the, the methylene dioxy component of the drug is a very important aspect of the structure itself. And certainly. People can get methamphetamine, what's called dirt amphetamine, on the street fairly easily. But that's a different compound altogether. It has a very, very different effect. I think what the listeners need to understand is that very, very small changes, additions and subtractions to a molecule, make for very, very big changes and differences in effect. And methylene dioxy methamphetamine, MDMA, ecstasy, is a very specific molecule. Now, is it difficult to make? This is not something that someone's going to be able to make easily in their garage or in their basement. It is, in fact, what's called a designer drug. Um, One of the pioneers in developing new drugs with potential psychiatric use was uh, following Dr. Alexander Shulgin, who was recently passed away, and Dr. Shulgin was able to synthesize MDMA in a a fairly tight synthetic process. But, of course, he was an organic chemist, and he was able to do this because he's done a tremendous amount of experimentation from similar compounds. So, I think that what your listening audience needs to understand is that MDMA is not a drug that is easily synthesized or is easily fabricated. It's not necessarily a street drug in that regard, which is why very often when people acquire ecstasy on the street, it's pretty much a gamble. It's they're running a little risk. Is it pure MDMA? or is it MDMA mixed with methamphetamine or mixed with other compounds to be able to get a similar high, a similar hit, but not necessarily delivering the right neurochemical effects that would then gain the therapeutic benefit.
0: Based on your years of observation observing how MDMA affects people, do you feel that it ultimately does more good than harm if taken under the right circumstances?
4: Huge caveat with that last part you added to that. I'm glad you did. I think that under the right circumstances, with the right dose that has been calculated for specific individuals who are treatment-resistant regarding to their PTSD and depression. Recent research that has been going on, particularly the work in South Carolina, suggests strongly that there may indeed be a place for very specific dosing of MDMA to offer these patients some benefit.
0: Dr. James Giordano, I want to thank you so, so much for your time today. You can learn more about Dr. Giordano by going to her, your website at neurobioethics.org. And on there, you're going to see a lot of great articles. You're going to see a lot of upcoming events that Dr. Giordano is doing. Very fascinating study, a very fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Joining us now is world-renowned psychic medium and energy healer, Miss Carrie O'Connor. We can learn more about Miss O'Connor by going to our website at kerryoconnor.com. Miss O'Connor, what can you tell us about the metaphysical, spiritual properties and meaning behind MDMA?
3: MDMA is a wonderful avenue for us to get connected to our, crown, open up our crown chakra, open up our, our psychic sight, It allows us to go beyond what I see as very linear thinking. A lot of times when I look at people's energy fields, it looks like they're viewing life through binoculars or sometimes even a telescope. And what this ecstasy does, it allows us to take that binoculars off, be able to get that telescope off so we view and interact with life differently there's a constant communication going on in the universe all around us. It goes through us. It's constant. It's not anything new. Most of the time, we get, we're get we so staticky, we don't tap into this communication that goes through the birds, that goes through the trees, that goes through the world, that goes through the universe and the stars. And so ecstasy allows us to get rid of our boundaries, get rid of those binoculars, and tap into that communication, that constant communication, that universal energy, again, that's that we're part of.
0: Yeah, when people... Uh, take MDMA. Sometimes the feeling has been described as that of pure bliss. Uh, I guess, or a, um, an enhanced version of what it's like to feel connected, and all things are one. Is that feeling that people talk about, the euphoria? Is that a, a, an inclination of what it feels like when you have actually physically died and have moved into a heavenly-like realm? I mean, are we when you when you're in heaven? Are you feeling like you're on ecstasy?
3: Yes, a lot of people could feel that because they feel so free. So many times, Ryan, when I see people cross over, it seems like they do this image of their unzipping from the physical body. The physical body goes to the ground, like a, like if we drop a, row, a piece of clothing that we were wearing, and then we feel again very wide. It's like we're allowing ourselves to really get in tr- touch with our true nature, and it could feel like I've heard it been described like a cosmic orgasm, to be honest, because it is such a it's a feeling that goes through the physical, mental, emotional bodies, and it does go allows us to get right to the heart, where I see so many people. In life, they're connected to what I call the wounded heart. It literally looks like in their energy field they're holding on to this inner tube that they are holding on for dear life. And part of our journey here is to be able to let go of that inner tube because it literally blocks us from having true heartfelt experience, experiencing true love, experiencing bliss all the time, not just every once in a while.
0: Okay. And is there anything that A person can do? Is there any metaphysical practices a person can engage in that would allow them to have a closer sensation to what MDMA is when it's at its full peak, when you are experiencing all the physical effects? Can you meditate? Can you listen to certain frequencies? Can you listen to certain music? Is there anything that you can do to elevate your vibrational frequency to that um, more in line to when you're feeling the peak, I guess, euphoric feelings? Being on MDMA. Absolutely,
3: Ryan. Every single thing that you mentioned will get you in contact with the ecstasy bliss feeling. Listening to beautiful music, anything that's connecting to the heart chakra, anything that allows us to get out of mind and emotion and ego and tap into that space. And I call it the sacred heart space. it's a literal pathway in our energy field that when we start living from that place. We're literally doing what Jesus said of being able to be in this world, be physically grounded, have wonderful experiences, but beyond duality. So anytime we tap in, even doing a breath, and right now I'm just sinking right into that sacred heart space, on a breath, and I'm feeling myself expand. Front, back, sides, 360 degrees. Doing that throughout the day literally opens up pathways to that sacred heart area. That sacred heart equals bliss, ecstasy, heaven.
0: Are there any angelic or animal or celestial or even um, non-celestial type entities that are closely associated with the energetic reading that comes from MDMA?
3: As you said that, I saw the energy of what looked like a starry rainbow energy. So imagine the stars represent a high vibration. Every color of the rainbow allows you to have access to different celestial realms, and then it looks like it's just raining down on us. So that's a beautiful image of having that that sacred star energy go through all the energy bodies, allowing us to anchor it, ground it, literally absorb it into the physical body and open up the heart energy.
0: Excellent. Miss Carrie O'Connor. Thank you so much for your great analysis and insight on MDMA. You can learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor and get a reading with Miss Carrie O'Connor by going to her website at CarrieOConnor.com. Thank you so much, Miss O'Connor.
3: Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure.
0: Joining us now is the celestial tsunami of love, Ms. Lisa Kaza, Psychic Medium. You can learn more about Ms. Kaza by going to her website, at lisakaza.com. Miss Kaza, what can you tell us about some of the spiritual aspects about MDMA?
1: Okay. Well, I will start off by saying that this is actually something I can speak to because many, many years ago when I was with my ex-husband, I had taken it. So I know all about it. And so... In terms of, I'll get to the spiritual part of it in a minute, but what I wanted to relay on is that when you do take this, I notice that a lot of people, um, they open up, they open up their hearts and they open up their minds. I remember sitting at the kitchen table talking until like four o'clock in the morning with my ex-husband and talking about you know, our worries, our fears, uh, every little thing that we could possibly want to talk about or but didn't want to talk about for whatever reason, whether, it well, for me, I, it was all fear-based. And when it came to him, well, he was just a naturally, emotionally closed-off individual. So it really does open up the channels in terms of communication with others. And it... I believe, like it does allow, like for example, my ex-husband being so closed off emotionally, it it removes that block, and it oh, yeah. it allows the person to show their true
0: feelings. Now, when you look at it, do you feel that it it has celestial properties? Is is there celestial type energy associated with that uh, drug?
1: No, and I'll tell you why. Uh, again, going by my own experience, um, it, it may have a, a positive effect on, um, No, I don't want to say normal everyday people, because, but we're not normal everyday people, are we? Um, for myself and actually a couple of other um, spiritual teachers that are working in the metaphysical field that I've spoken to about this over the years, um, they've actually been in agreement with me, is that what happened is each and every time I did um, take this stuff, for approximately two weeks after, I was completely shut down. I was completely blocked. I couldn't work. I, I couldn't think. I couldn't is it, do,
0: do it's anything. Your, it's the natural reaction of your body repairing, the, replacement the of serotonin. Do you think that the, is, it, is the crash... Are there possible hangover associated with it? Do you think that, that that overrides any positive benefit from MDMA?
1: No, no, in fact, yeah. I felt it is quite the opposite. It, it um, like sure it'll like for the spiritual people, not spiritual people, but people who work in the metaphysical field, especially, you know, when they work with uh, doing readings specifically for whatever reason, it it, it just it shuts you down. And that's not beneficial at all that there's nothing positive about that at all um, and like I said each and every time I took it it that's but, what it had done to me
0: well what I'm asking you this is that you know you're looking at this property said so that okay um, if you look at it you said it's not rooted in celestial it doesn't have celestial energy associated with it yet there are certain people who've taken it who say that they were able to connect or they were able to say things that they weren't able to say or they were able to experience love so I'm curious right. to know, how can, how can something like that that allows you to experience that, even if it's an illusion, but have the knowledge or capability of experiencing that, how can that be not rooted in celestial? How can that be rooted in something dark or sinister?
1: Well, it's not necessarily dark and sinister either. It's because you've got to realize like it's, what's going on is that you know MDMA is, is man-created. It's man-made. It's a chemical and so when you get into stuff like that then that's where you know it's intent behind it is the main thing as well you have to consider that when there's if there's intent behind the creation of it a lot of people actually don't even realize what they're doing um but i have a very difficult time like even like as i tune try to tune into to spirit and divine like as i'm talking to you I'm just, it's like I'm getting this image of a, you know, shaking of a head saying, no, 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 no. Like perhaps it can help, like I said a few minutes ago, those individuals who were naturally closed off prior, you know, like Uh, emotionally speaking, like as you said, it allows you to feel love and true love. Yes, it does. However, it's it's a chemical, excuse me, man made chemical that forces this upon the the person, whereas you know for people like myself and you and and other readers um, we already feel love we already know what that feels like, so as of one for one it's much more intense when if we take it, but we shouldn't have to take it is is my I guess my point that I'm trying to get across is it doesn't necessarily need to be taken, especially for the more open individual. So, I, like, I can't uh, um, endorse it for any any good purpose. I'm just I'm not even getting a confirmation from divine that it's got uh, really good purposes, other than as I just mentioned for those people who are closed off for so but,
0: uh, many years well, when you are doing this and you're you're on this drug and you you're feeling much more open are you allowing yourself to be more open to the higher celestial beings and more receptive to their messages or are you in one way allowing yourself to be more vulnerable to negative entities like i'm, I'm curious to know is that when you get to this point we are on this drug, is your vibrational frequency higher because of what you're experiencing and could you actually pull yourself or draw into your experience a negative entity that you normally would not had you not been experiencing this particular drug?
1: Um, Well firstly the first part of the question is yes your vibration does go higher however there's a message attached to that that I was just given that it's kind of uh, fabricated if you, it, it, that, that's the best way for me to put it. It's not um, natural. It, that's it. It's not naturally done. So it's fabricated. But yes, it is higher. But when you are vibrating at a much higher frequency, how the heck can you, can you possibly attract a negative energy when negative energy is at a much, much, much lower frequency? When you're vibrating at a, at a high level um the only thing that you would be attracting would be more uh higher level um entities if you will it, it just doesn't allow room for negative to come in when you're when you're feeling positive well positive's going to come back at you it, that's it's pretty uh, basic basic principle with that one
0: miss lisa caza thank you so much for your insight MDMA and to learn more about Kaza and to get a reading with please go to our website at lisakaza.com thank you so much thank you so much Ryan okay everyone that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show special thanks to our amazing guests dr. Julie Holland dr. James Giordano psychic empath Lisa Kaza, and psychic medium Carrie O'Connor to learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and fears. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, this is Ryan, host and executive producer of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. Here today to tell you about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, psychic medium, psychic empath Lisa Kaza and Astrophenom Constance All three of these individuals are powerful metaphysical seers, teachers. I love talking to them, and I think you should talk to them as well. Psychic medium Carrie O'Connor, which you can find her at CarrieOConnor.com. Will provide a lot of insight on your life. She visually sees spirits. She can tell you all kinds of great information. Facilitate communication with your loved ones. Awesome. Check her out, CarrieOConnor.com. Then you've got the miss Constance Stellis. You lay out your birthday, she'll tell you about where your chart is, where you're headed to, some of the things you can predict, whether or not you're in astrological compatibility with that uh, Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful you're currently dating. See if that can happen. Learn little about, more about Ms. Celeste by going to her website at Constancellis.com. And then, of course, we have Psychic Empath, Miss Lisa Caza at LisaCaza.com. Lisa Caza is so amazing. She's direct, straightforward, going to give you the straight, honest truth. She'll provide a tremendous amount of insight into where you're going and what are your, some of your biggest decisions? Lisa is very unique, hard-hitting, powerful. Lisa Casa, Constance Ellis, Carrie O'Connor, all virtues that you can hear on a regular basis on the Outer Limits, Radio Show. I've talked to 75 psychic mediums or more, plus in my life. I think these three individuals stand out. They are amazing. I love them to death. Be sure to contact them and learn more about all of them by going to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com.
2: Goldman McCormick PR, also a specialist in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training,
1: and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com